Turn it on. But I'm glad that you came up. Can you hear me now? Thank you. So, so there are three key festivals that were celebrated. The, the most important one was Passover, which was in the spring. And of course, Passover celebrated the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. And the Passover, the angel of death uh, over the houses of the Israelites who had the blood on the lintels and the doors. And when the angel saw that, uh, that blood passed over and the firstborn were not, were not killed. That, that was to be celebrated every single year, and it was the most solemn of the, of the festivals. But then there was 50 days after that, there was the Feast of Pentecost, or the Festival of Pentecost, which was really a celebration of God's, of the harvest. Uh, and so there was a lot of food, a lot of celebration uh, around that. And then there was the Feast of the Tabernacles, and the Tabernacles were a celebration of their wanderings in the wilderness uh, for those 40 years where God provided for them the manna, and they slept out in these little tents, or these, these huts, these, these tabernacles. And, of course, God led them, and he was in his own tabernacle. That's where we have the tent of meeting, where the sacrifices were done in the tent of meeting, where it was in the middle of the Israelite camps. Uh, and God tabernacled with his people. And, of course, Jesus ultimately comes to tabernacle with us. But, but these three feasts were actually charges and commandments that all the Israelites were to go up to Jerusalem three times a year to do that. And so these were uh, Sabbath. Uh, they were holidays of rest and renewal and recreation. There was often a lot of feasting, a lot of food, a lot of celebrating, uh, some of you were here last night, the karaoke night. Uh, as much fun as we had then, last night, uh, these things were full of just fellowship and fun, actually, uh, besides just solemn celebrations. But uh, Jesus had that first festival, or that marriage celebration that we, that we saw in the first miracle, uh, and he has these Sabbaths and these festivals that, uh, that he celebrates throughout. And there's great food. And, of course, last time I said how he made great wine. Uh, and, of course, all of those things point to pictures of heaven and the celebration of heaven. But I, I should have cautioned last time that in the midst of making this great wine, that in our world we find that Satan takes good gifts of God and makes them enslaving idols. And so we know, and many of us know, family members and friends who are in great battles with addiction to alcohol. And so we need to be very careful and precaution about that. Jesus came to set us free. And in this passage today, he sets a disabled man free. And we'll look at that in John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going on another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. A good counselor will work at getting to the heart or the core issue of what is preventing someone from experiencing uh, health in their life. Uh, A good physician will seek to uncover those issues, those core sources of infection or disease or cancer that's hurting that person. Uh, A number of years ago, uh, the church graciously gave me uh, a sabbatical, and during that period of time, I went to a spiritual counselor and coach to kind of like do some soul work. And I uh, took Maria with me on this occasion. And I remember one visit where uh, I shared an incident that had taken place uh, that I just thought was a stupid error of judgment. Uh, uh, I missed a family dinner uh, after the Easter service. And uh, during that period of time when I was off, Sometimes I would go and visit other churches. I would, some Sunday mornings, I'd go to two services. And this particular uh, Sunday, I had gotten absorbed in the fellowship after that particular service. And I just kind of lost track of time. And then when I got to the car and I looked at my watch, I said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe what time it is. I called, and the dinner at home was already over. Uh, Yes, uh-oh. Now, it was not intentional. It was just an oversight. I felt really bad about it. And so I told this to my counselor and said it was just a stupid mistake, and he checked me. He says, no, you are not stupid. There is something more here. And I tried to discount it. You know, it was an error of judgment. I claimed it was just a a stupid oversight, and he stopped, and he says, no, it was not a stupid oversight, and so he would not let me go. Uh, I want you to look at this situation, he said, as a window into your soul. I want you to think and focus about what happened on Easter that led you to forget about your family dinner. In other words, let's put some light on this event until we figure out what is really going on inside. Now, I started to feel really uncomfortable in this, in this time, and Maria said, you know, he's a really good counselor. <laughs> and he was a really good counselor. For a good counselor, like a good doctor, will pursue with focused persistence on the healing of their patients. And here Jesus, as the great physician in our passage, is one who pursues this man's healing. I mean, his whole healing. And Jesus comes after us to pursue our whole healing. And this event shows us how he goes after sick and stuck sinners 
like us. And uh, it shows how Jesus exposes our issues, how he commands our engagement, and how he shepherds our growth. And there's really three statements that we're going to look at in this passage, a probing question, a commanding action, and a sobering warning. A probing question. So Jesus comes to this man that's been paralyzed. He comes to this pool, and Jesus found out that he'd been there for 38 years, and he comes to him, and he says, do you want to be healed? Now, picture near the northeast corner of Jerusalem, a recessed pool surrounded by various steps or terraces where people would sit and they would lie on uh, their mats or whatever, and they were, it was under like five colonnades uh, to provide shade. And this, this, is, this is actually the pool of Bethsaida uh, outside the northeast gate, the sheep gate in Jerusalem. Uh, these are the remains. You can see a couple of the columns that, uh, that are still there. Apparently, this was a popular place for many people, disabled, impaired, uh, blind, lame, paralyzed, would come to this. Uh, and you need to consider back then that people uh, with, with, uh, who were paralyzed not only had issues with mobility and livelihood uh, uh, to provide for themselves, they were also subject to a lot of isolation uh, in society. No, there were no wheelchairs, no uh, handicapped ramps and special accommodations, and then picture that here's a man who's been in this state for 38 years. Uh, he's been paralyzed. Maybe he had use of his arms. If he had use of his arms, they were probably, you know, his hands were very callous. His, his clothes were probably disheveled. Uh, and also, a person in this state uh, probably had a lot of hygiene issues. And people just would stay away from such a person. It was a rather agonizing condition. But when Jesus comes into Jerusalem... He comes through the sheep gate. Jesus goes to this broken man. He, he engages his life in a very personal way. And Jesus didn't, his first words weren't, hey, nice day, or how are you doing? Gee, fellow, what happened to you? And, uh, you know, Jesus gets very direct with this man. And he says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? Uh, now, I, I'm trying to think about what kind of response would this man have? Now, what do you think, Jesus? I've been, you know, look at me. You know, what kind of a question is that? Uh, but Jesus asked this man this question, I believe, because he wanted to probe his heart. Uh, it's the kind of question that he wants to drive this person to answer. Is he really serious about getting well? But this is what the man answers. Sir... I have no one to help me in the pool when the, when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And, of course, the belief was, was that once in a blue moon, an angel would stir the waters, and the first person into the pool would somehow get miraculous, miraculously healed. Uh, and so he's making this as the excuse. And there, the excuse is this. The first words out of the man's mouth was this, I have no one to help me. I have no one. I have no one. And the reality is, I believe that this man has been so accustomed to a lifestyle of his disability that he, that is his identity. He really has given up. He had stopped developing what he had. He made excuses. He looked to others to 
Blame others. I have no one. I am here because I have no one to help me. Now, Carneal means is a deacon in our church, and uh, he's familiar with the nuances and the subtleties of uh, whether a person, particularly a person who may be struggling with addiction, is serious about getting well because he said, because he was one. And, he, and Carneal says, as addicts, we become comfortable with our condition, begging, bumming, a lot of us are afraid of change, creatures of habit, even though it is a miserable lifestyle. And I asked Carneal about this particular passage some years ago. And uh, this is what Carneal uh, said, he, you know, as he looked at this man's excusing or shift, blame-shifting statements. He says, I don't really think he was trying that hard. He would have been right at the water's edge. <laughs> There's always a but. You need to remove that butt if you're going to make progress. We know what we have to do. We hold back. We don't give our all into the battle. You know, I think that Jesus probes with this question, and he really uncovers this guy. This, the excuses maybe worked for a lot of other people, but Jesus wasn't buying them. And Jesus was always, Jesus is always asking, probing, and penetrating questions to people that he comes to to have them explore and examine what's really going on in their hearts. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Uh, you know, the God of the scriptures is a glorious intruder, as one person said, going to the heart of matters. Uh, he doesn't tiptoe. He doesn't sidestep the hard questions. He uncovers. He goes to our jugular. Life is too precious. Time is too precious for lesser things. This man was stuck. Uh, living out of a life of apathy, defeat, of disbelief, blaming, excusing, getting over, getting by, and giving up. And so Jesus doesn't entertain that excuse. Jesus doesn't talk about, well, it's too bad that you're, no one is there to help you. Jesus has really one response, and it has three imperatives. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk, and they are three commands that Jesus gives him. He doesn't indulge the man's apathy. He doesn't patronize his hopeless statements. Oh, this is just terrible. You have no one. You truly are a poor, a poor soul. Or he didn't say, well, hang on, just keep trying harder next time. Maybe if you just work it up, you can be there. Uh, Jesus didn't do that. He offered three commands, get up, pick up, walk. It's almost as if Jesus rebuked him and commanded him to get off his butt and to get moving on with his life, to do something with yourself. You're more than what you have become. And when I was on uh, that sabbatical, uh, my counselor had confronted me about that so-called so lapse of memory and my stupid oversight. Uh, and in the process, it really forced me to put a spotlight on what a core heart issue was. And the core heart issue for me, and what is probably a heart issue for maybe many in this room, is that a lot of times we'll make work a bigger deal than it should be. That work and our sense of success and identity gets bound up into our work, and so we keep working over extended times, and we rob relationships. And I just wasn't paying close enough attention to an important family matter. And you know, in ministry, 
it's easy, an easier excuse to overwork because it's, you're doing the Lord's work. And, you know, and it just, it, people kind of expect that, you know, that you'll, you'll do that. And, and so I, I found myself realizing that even the good things, the good work things that God's called us to can become idols. And that's what was taking place in my life. And by the way, uh, you know, when Jesus tells this man to get up, pick up, and walk, he gave this command that particular day, and of course the man was healed, but getting up and picking up and walking, and that is something we have to do every day. It is a fight of obedience every single day. And in another uh, counseling session where a similar thing came up, uh, my counselor told me I can no longer tell my wife, I'm sorry. I can't tell her I'm sorry anymore when, I'm, when I do something I didn't mean to do, or even if I meant to do it. I can't use the words, I'm sorry. Now, try to imagine that you're you know, with your beloved and you're, you do something wrong. It is the normal response, of, at least for me as a guy, to say, I'm sorry, love. I'm, you know, really sorry. He says, you can't use that word anymore. And so I'm thinking, wow, I can't say I'm sorry anymore. What? I said, what do I say? Well, he said, well, you could say it sucks to be you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that would get go very far. But I think that what he was forcing me, and I, this is not the response that we should say to our spouses, but the reality is, is that it, we have to deal with those issues. We got to deal with the heart issues and ask ourselves, well, what's repentance really look like? What's faith really look like in this context? And what we see with this, with this uh, man is that there's really no clear repentance in his life. Uh, so Jesus commands this man to get up, pick up, and walk. And, of course, Jesus heals him, and he does that. He gets up and picks up and walks. Uh, Jesus dis disappears. The crowd comes around. This guy's picking up his mat, and he's walking with it. Now, in that day... This was Sabbath. You see, this was a Sabbath. He was not to work. And then the, the Jewish uh, leaders had all of these laws and regulations that totally distorted God's intention for Sabbath rest, which was you're just to not work. You're not to be consumed with your work. You're to rest and recreate and refresh and renew yourself. But the, the Jewish leaders put all these laws. They couldn't even pick up something like a mat and walk. So this guy, he, they come to him and said, hey, you're not supposed to be holding your mat. And he says, well, it's not my fault. The man that healed me, he's the one that told me to do this, right? He's kind of already shifting blame in what he's, well, he's, he's shifting responsibility. Instead, he should have said to these Jewish leaders, listen, I've been paralyzed for 38 years. This mat is not a a means of burden to me. This is a celebration. I can carry my mat for the first time in 38 years. I am walking because this man healed me. But he didn't say that. He said, 
said, this guy told me to do that. And then when Jesus meets him and he says, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you, the first thing that he does, he goes to the Jewish leaders and he tells them it was Jesus that did it. And then they started persecuting Jesus. There was no faith. There was no repentance. The man was blame shifting. He was basically uh, casting you know, his excuse on to Jesus. And that is very different from a passage, John chapter 9, which is a few chapters later, where Jesus heals a man that's born blind from birth. And uh, in that particular passage, the Jewish leader, it was on Sabbath as well, the Jewish leaders come and, you know, they are all upset that, that he was healed on the Sabbath day. But this man rebuked the Pharisees and the religious leaders and said, what are you saying? I've been blind since birth, and this man healed me. And then he said, no, everybody knows that no one can heal like this except God. He says, and they said, do you want, you know, he asked them, he said, maybe you want to be his disciples too. Anyhow, this guy expressed faith. He was, he was holding firm to the reality of who Jesus was, and he was taking ownership for his healing. With this what this passage reveals to us is something that is deeper than our physical needs and our physical infirmities, and that is our soul condition. That is uh, the sin in our lives. And so Jesus goes to him and he says, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Well, what is that something worse that might happen to this man? Well, I think that Jesus is really talking about eternal judgment. I think he's talking about hell. And I think that a lot of times we might take for granted the grace that we have. And Jesus says, don't take the grace of God for granted. Stop sinning. Deal with your sin. Repent. Demonstrate the fruits of faith. Make sure that you're of the faith. Uh, now, we don't know exactly what the sin was that this man had been committing. Uh, it doesn't say in this passage. The man clearly, I think, knew what the sin was that Jesus was saying. But we find that Jesus focuses him to deal with his sin. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about our physical state or about the conditions of our, of our health. Jesus is certainly involved in, and he cares very deeply. Uh, there are passages in the scripture where we find that people's sins are tied to their particular conditions. There are certain passages where there's consequences that are clearly tied to a person's sins. So we find like in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira where they sold their possessions and they gave their, their, their proceeds to the apostles. Uh, that they gave the impression that they gave all the proceeds, but they actually were holding back. And then we find that in the first, one of the first things in Acts is that God took their lives, Ananias and Sapphira, for lying to the Holy Spirit. So we clearly see a tie to sin and God's discipline. We also saw that uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, dealing with communion. Some people would come and take the supper in an unworthy manner. Uh, there were the rich that were humiliating the poor in their midst, and many had fallen asleep. And so we see these particular things. But as a norm, as a norm in the scriptures, what we find is that we, don't, we can't make the direct association between discipline or a person's death 
and their particular sin. Uh, the scriptures tell us in Psalm 103, God does not treat us as our sins deserve uh, or repay us according to our iniquities. And so our response to people in their physical conditions and their hardships in life, we should never associate that they deserve this and that, that this is something that, that God has brought judgment. Of course, that's what the Pharisees did as well. But what we find in the scriptures is this call to recognize that there's something bigger and greater than our physical health. It is our spiritual health. It is the condition of our souls. You know, um, there was a, a professor, uh, Kate Bowler, uh, she's a prof- uh, Divinity Duke uh, professor, uh, and she wrote an article yet last week in Death, The Prosperity of the Gospel and Me. She uh, wrote her doctoral work on the prosperity gospel in America. Uh, she's 35 years old, and then she found out in this past year that she has stage 4 uh, cancer. And so she's writing about her own journey and her own pain. In, uh, in Cancer has kicked down the walls of my life. I cannot be certain I will walk my son to his elementary school someday or subject his love interest to cheerful scrutiny. I have surrendered my favorite manifestos about having it all, managing work-life balance and maximizing my potential. I cannot help but remind my best friend that if my husband remarries, everyone will need to simmer down on talking about how special I was in front of her. Cancer requires that I stumble around in the debris of dreams I thought I was entitled to and plans I didn't realize I made. I, I just think she really captures a very sober reality of suffering and the Lord of the universe and Jesus is very attuned to the suffering that we experience. Uh, probably the person that has helped me most in understanding the whole nature of such suffering and where God fits into this is Johnny Erickson Tada, uh, who grew up here in Baltimore. Uh, she's quadriplegic. She dove in the Chesapeake Bay when she was 18. She's been a quadriplegic for 46-plus for years, I think. Um, and she used to, you know, read this passage— this John 5 passage, and she was looking to be that paralyzed man that Jesus would heal. And she actually went to some faith healing events, Catherine Coleman, which was kind of like the present-day Benny Hinn, uh, expecting that Jesus would heal her along with many other paralyzed people. But she came to realize that that wasn't God's plan for her, and she uh, came to that sobering uh, reality of just that this appeared to be the nature of her life. And she cried out to God, and she said, if I can't live this way, then somebody else is going to have to. Jesus, you're going to have to do it for me. I can't do this thing called quadriplegia. Please show me how to live. And she cries out to God in this desperate experience And she continued to read the scriptures, and she came across a passage in the first gospel, or Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus would heal the multitudes, and the disabled and the diseased people would come to him. And he healed them from morning to night. And it says the next morning, he's up in the the mountains, 
are praying. Uh, and the disciples are coming after him saying, because all the disabled and the diseased people were at the base, and they're waiting for Jesus to come and do a whole other day of healing. But when the disciples come to Jesus, Jesus says, I must preach the gospel to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And so Jesus leaves all of these diseased and paralyzed people to go to another village to preach the gospel. And Johnny says when she read that, it hit her. It hit her like, like nothing else ever. And she realized uh, that the gospel was a much bigger deal than her physical impairments. That the gospel, she said, it is not that Jesus didn't care about all those sick and diseased people. It's just that their problems weren't his main focus. The gospel was. The gospel that says sin kills, hell is real, but God is merciful, and that his kingdom can change you, and Jesus is the way. And then she says, whenever people miss this, whenever they just start coming to Jesus to get their pain and their problems fixed, the Savior would always back away. She said, no wonder I had been so depressed. I was into Jesus just to get my problems and my paralysis fixed. But the Gospel of Mark showed me his priorities. And you know, in this pool of Bethsaida, there were many other paralyzed people and other blind people, other people that were, were there, and Jesus did not heal them either. There was a deeper healing that Jesus is after. And so Johnny says, I asked for the deeper healing. And from Psalm 139, he says, search me, O God, try my heart, test me, and uh, see if there be some wicked way in me and cleanse me from uh, every sin that, and set me free. And so, so Johnny is coming to her Savior to ask her for the deeper healing. And Jesus is pointing this man, this man by acknowledging his need to address his sin, to pursue the deeper healing. So what is Jesus saying to you? What's the probing questions today that he is asking you to address? Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Uh, you know, why did you miss that Easter <laughs> dinner? What are the questions that are surfacing areas of stronghold or, or, or areas that are preventing you from living the full life that God has called you to? Why am I unable to rest? Or why are, uh, am I anxious? Why am I underloving? Uh, why am I spending so much of time on my appearance? What's locking up and stealing your joy? These are the probing questions. And so what is the action of faith that Christ is calling you to? He tells the man, pick up your mat and walk. Get up and pick up your mat and walk. What is the action of faith that Jesus might be calling you to today? The step of faith. And I would like to encourage you to go to a friend and tell them what you think the probing question is that Jesus might be asking you today in your life. And what is the faith action that Jesus might be calling you to today in your life? And, and think about that today and give yourself to that. But I want you to know the gospel in this passage. 
the gospel, the good news in this passage is that Jesus didn't wait for this, this paralyzed man to do anything. Jesus comes to him. He, he takes the initiative to engage this man. And the gospel is that God steps out first. God, the gospel is he loves us first. And Jesus didn't wait for this man to repent or to express any kind of faith. Jesus healed him. He extended grace to him. And the gospel is that he loved us when we were still rebels. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he loved us so much. And so God loves us. Jesus loves you much more than all things and was willing to give his life fully for you. So today, uh, ask the probing questions. Ask Jesus to show you what is the question that you need today, that you might be free. And we pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you give us this passage to remind us that uh, there are areas in our lives that we need to spend time to think about. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a good shepherd, that you come after your sheep, Lord, that our salvation is not just something that we do once, but Lord, we need salvation every day. God, we need, we need the strength of your word, and we need the grace of your spirit to help bring transformation to our hearts. Help us to live in that grace, and we commit this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Now may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with each of you now and forevermore. Amen.